This week at Macy's, get an extra 25% off the season's latest styles with your coupon or Macy's card. That's on top of already great savings, like 20 to 50% off Ink, DKNY, Clubroom, and more of your favorite designers for him and her. Get 30% off one pair, 40% off two pairs of boots, shoes, and booties. And prep your kitchen with 20 to 50% off roasting pans, cookware, and more. Plus, Star Rewards members earn rewards faster during Star Money bonus days, now at Macy's. Savings off regular sale and clearance prices, exclusions apply. This week at Macy's, get an extra 25% off the season's latest styles with your coupon or Macy's card. That's on top of already great savings, like 20 to 50% off Ink, DKNY, Clubroom, and more of your favorite designers for him and her. Get 30% off one pair, 40% off two pairs of boots, shoes, and booties. And prep your kitchen with 20 to 50% off roasting pans, cookware, and more. Plus, Star Rewards members earn rewards faster during Star Money bonus days, now at Macy's. Savings off regular sale and clearance prices, exclusions apply. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? Somewhere between science and superstition. We have such sights to show you. Strange. Eons. Welcome to Strange Eons Radio. That's Eric over there. Hello. That's Vanessa over there. Hi. I'm Kelly. We're recording this on a rare nighttime recording. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you guys, if you bother to listen to the very, very end of the episode, you always hear me say that, uh, that we're recording somewhere high above Naval Station Everett. And Naval Station Everett is actually the name of the Naval Station just below mm-hmm. us here. And uh, when I moved in here, the USS Nimitz was stationed there. Hmm. And I was always uh, looking forward to taking a tour on it. You know, I loved the movie, The Final Countdown and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Yeah. Well, about a year after I moved here, it moved to Brever- Bremerton. So it's, it's no longer stationed there. Uh, but I watched then, based on Vanessa's recommendation, oh. Midway. Yeah. Streaming now on HBO. Yeah. And uh and it was so wild to see Woody Harrelson portraying General Nimitz. <laughs> I thought he was great. I thought the movie was great. Yeah. I was I was so I I guess the word is thrilled and not in like thrilled happy as in the thrills were absolutely thrilling me. Yeah, that film is so <laughs> weird. I don't know why it got so much heat at the time, but like I, w- I was expecting it to be total garbage and was like, well, I'm a completionist. Let's check this one out. And it was so good. Yep. It had just great moments. The war scenes were just incredible, high action packed, as you said, thrilling, just super fun to watch. Having not seen it, I'm curious if some of it could be kind of like the a better version, but the Pearl Harbor effect? Did they do kind it's, of storylines that felt a little romanticized? I'm sure that it got a little bit of blowback because, I don't know about you guys, I did not like the movie Pearl Harbor. No. Mm. Um, this it, this has a Pearl Harbor scene. That's what starts this movie right. off. Oh, okay. And uh, I thought it was way more interesting looking. It showed a little more of the horrors of war also. Mm. And uh, I was, you know, I've watched a lot of war movies as a kid and all that stuff. And to be honest, uh, the original Midway with Charlton Heston, um, <laughs> not a favorite of mine. They, they, yeah. they forced a, uh, a romance into the, that I just was like, I, I mean, I get it. This is what 
people want is a little drama in their drama. Sure. But this didn't do that. And like you said on that episode, we talked about this. Uh, most of these characters were real characters. And at the end, they give you a little uh, a scroll of, you know, what this person did and, and you know, oh. all the, the achievements they had in the war and all that. I, I'll tell you this, and this might make me unpopular. I think that it got negative reviews because it's a rah-rah America movie in a time where um, maybe rah-rah America is not a popular thing When to did do. it come out? Just like last, last year, year. Two years oh, ago at the yeah. most. It's sort of lost in Super recent. the world of right now. I mean, <laughs> right. I think it's easy to come down on Emmerich because what was the one he did before this? Something that was... It wasn't the Shakespeare one, was it? No, that was quite a while ago. And non or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but I think, you know, people have been ready to like hate on him pretty, pretty quickly. And maybe, maybe it is the anti-patriotism thing, but it sucks because at the end he dedicates it to both America and Japan and the Japanese um, soldiers get a lot of like, airtime on this and it's they're not as like evil you know it's not like oh these guys are horrible people it's like their strategy is this our strategy is that which i found to be really fascinating that, that could be a problem too is it maybe it didn't caricaturize our enemies as being maybe it's just a know. time period that nobody wants to think about right now yeah i maybe. thought it was a surprisingly mature film mm -hmm. uh, because it did exactly that mm -hmm. uh we we flip back and forth between the war rooms of america and japan as as they're figuring out what to do and you could see that in japan there was a lot of opposition to even attacking pearl harbor and so sure. that was controversial mm -hmm. in japan mm -hmm. and they were dealing with the fallback from that or the fallout from even doing something like that, you know, they're a super honorable culture and everything. And I'm sure that this felt kind of like a, you know, an underhanded thing to do. Sure. And then in the end, it turned out to be a, a really bad decision on their part. Well, yeah. yeah. And they thought they had with the midway situation, they thought they had it in the back. They thought they understood like what we were going to do in response. And by we, I mean America. And then they just had it wrong. They just didn't expect certain things to come into play. And some stuff was luck and some stuff was strategy. And yeah, it was, it was like a really terrifying battleship movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It was yeah. very stressful. And like, they didn't pull, pull any punches. They were like, yeah, cool. So this guy just dies. <laughs> just so you know, <laughs> goodbye. He's gone. Yeah, um, it was also a, a spectacle film. I didn't yeah. expect to recognize every single person in it. <laughs> no, I was like, oh my god i know this character like i understand what this character is and where they're going and like what's happening and i can follow their plot yeah, ah, yeah. What? Nice. and also uh patrick wilson in any movie i'm just like oh okay sure. i feel like i'm in good hands with patrick wilson <laughs> <laughs> firm what did you watch uh oh man well i finished up juan oh so yeah. That Netflix was series? the Netflix series. Hey, so did I. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm curious to to hear what both of you think at the end. I found it to be weird. I thought it was a weird ending. I thought it was yeah, like, are yeah. we trying, are we fishing for a season two? Like what? Oh, I would say absolutely. Yeah. That was yeah. A, um, I, I feel like the episode prior to the end episode felt like an ending and when it wasn't and the next episode came and yeah. that was the ending i was like wait where's my next episode because yeah. this is the beginning of a story that you know uh yeah so. that's yeah. that's exactly how i felt i was like it really 
felt like there was so much good and good, strong, scary stuff in it. It was scary from like an emotional perspective from like, oh my God, ghosts, but also like, oh my God, people, um, both terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. And then you get to the end and I was like, wait, what happened to the, I cared about something else that was going on. And now this is different. <laughs> I thought it was a little weird how after all the stuff that went on and a large, large portion of it was just supernatural to have the two people like explode. Yeah. Was that was weird. weird. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Spontaneous combustion. Is that like a thing in Japanese lore? I don't remember seeing it in any of the, I mean, Obviously, I don't know Japanese lore that well, other no. than the movies I've seen. And it certainly wasn't a thing in the Grudge movies. No. So, I don't know, though. I, you know, to be honest, at the end of that last episode, I was like, okay, bring on season two. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm definitely interested in yeah. seeing another season. I think I want to know what the end, that end image where it's like a pond, but to me, it looks like a tarp underwater with the fish and I'm like, where does this come into the story? Is this like what they do at the house? Do they end up like blowing it up and putting like a fish pond over it? Like mm. I felt like it was something, it was supposed to be something and then it wasn't. So I was like, I need to know <laughs> what the pond is. Well, uh, I have a small amount of experience in this and yeah, ponds have pond liners that are basically big rubber tarps. But so you might be disappointed. Why are we looking at that? Maybe that was just what the scene was. No. Okay. <laughs> I need a better answer. I need to know what it means. <sighs> Sometimes okay. a pawn's just a pawn. That's right. <laughs> no. Well, I am pleased to hear that both of you liked it. That means all three of us liked it. That makes it a strange eons radio three super show. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> three skulls up. <laughs> Go strange Eon's army. Check it out. Three tentacles up. No, but you <laughs> I, enjoyed I can, it overall. It didn't like. No, no, I enjoyed it overall. I there was um, I mean, it was definitely a hard watch. I think that was something that Kelly pointed out early on. Yeah, there was a lot, a lot of, of stuff, really rough yeah. stuff, um, between the abuse and the the sexual assaults and the there was a lot to take in. And I know that they're trying to be like, oh yeah, this place is horrible and haunted and grudge-like for a reason. Yeah. I don't know. I think the story earned itself. I didn't feel like that stuff was there to make you feel gross and to force you to watch it. I think it was there to help the story yeah. build. I saw one that wasn't nearly as gross, but oh, uh, pretty good. Do tell. Um, the, I think this came up in something before, but uh, La Llorona. Oh, I was wondering how La that Llorona. was. La Llorona. Is this the one that's on? Shutter. Okay. Not the blue so house one. New, oh, okay. So I still haven't one. seen this other one. I'm, I, I I'm have, blown away that there are two of these. Yeah. I, I haven't seen the Blumhouse. I don't know what the difference is. Well, the Blumhouse one is shitty, so maybe yeah. that's the difference. <laughs> Apparently, the this fable of the weeping woman is a fairly major... Spanish. Yeah. Mexican. Fable. Tale they tell. It's altered for this, at least the version I watched. It's mm -hmm. altered from what the original is, but the concept is still there. The but the the one on Shutter almost feels like it shouldn't be on Shutter. I'd say it's about fifteen to twenty no, nah, that's being generous. Ten to fifteen minutes of a horror movie. Oh. And the rest is a dramatic political thriller. What? Oh. What? 
No, <laughs> wait, what? Yeah, the the whole story of this one revolves around a leader who's been dethroned or whatever he's called a general, so he's been removed from power, mm-hmm. and he's on trial for atrocities against uh, native people where they are they're charged with genocide. Oh, and so his family's in the house while the people are outside because he was found guilty, and then his the Congress of that country found it erased that guilty plea. Mm-hmm. So the people then showed up at his house and they're trapped in the house dealing with this. And then that that's where the weeping woman comes into play. Because there's like a scene where he hears a woman crying, but nobody else can. And that's kind of early on. Sort of comes up, but really doesn't come up again until the end. And then there's mm-hmm. a whole lot of supernatural stuff right at the end. But most of it is a pretty good. I mean, it's still a pretty good movie. But, man, it, it's weird for a Shutter film. I'm guessing um, shot in Mexico, mm, um, all... Guatemala, whatever country. Okay, okay. Period piece, or is it set in the present day? Probably current. I mean, it could be any, as far as guerrilla warfare style, it could be anything in the last okay. 25 years or so. I guess the big question is, was it any good? Right. It was good. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if I'd recommend it to hardcore horror because it's just not it's not very horror does it feel shoot in like the, the no not at all stuff? it works it okay. really works but it's just part of the story oh okay. so it, it is good but it's not um it's definitely not the main theme of the movie. <laughs> weird that's so weird yeah i wonder how shutter is, got a hold of that is that remotely similar to the no uh, the blumhouse <laughs> one is american made and it's got uh, it, it's got some Mexican actors in it, but most of the dialogue is in English and spoken in English. Mm. And you can tell it was made to be screened in American theaters. Ah. And Blumhouse has like this, uh, they've got this schedule of events that happens in every movie. And so sure. <laughs> this thing follows that routine, like to the letter where something kind of creepy happens, you know, in the first 20 minutes, yeah. you know, that's after the very opening is a very sc- creepy, scary scene. And then 10 years later, later or something like that, we were introduced to the characters we're going to be following through the film. Then something kind of creepy happens around 20 minutes, and then there's always going to be that one jump scare that's really creepy at about 32 minutes in, you know, and mm-hmm. shit like that. And and so I think they've kind of dialed in exactly who their audience is and what they're looking for, and this yeah. follows that mm-hmm. completely. Yeah, they're, uh, I liked plenty of Blumhouse films, but there's plenty of that is just like, no, this is kind of a garbage film. I do like how much they give filmmakers chances and they really like invest in talent that's up and coming. Like there's a lot to like about them, but that formulaic bullshit, I just, I hate it so much. So the, the, that one, the one I watched is Guatemalan and French. Whoa. Cool. That makes sense. Language spoken says Spanish, although they, there's obviously two languages being spoken because some people talk to each other and other people need to translate it for them. Mm Mm-hmm. But, uh, but it, yeah, if you want a good political thriller with a touch of horror, it, it definitely would fit that bill. How do you guys feel about the news that uh, Blumhouse is doing a remake of The Thing mm. and John Carpenter is involved? Wait, a, wait, 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 as wait. As a producer. Or, wait, wait. 
as a write me a check and enjoy, I don't care. Wait, you know, probably wait, wait. the same way he was a producer on the remake of The Fog. <laughs> I mean, him and Deborah Hill were on <laughs> that, but yeah. uh, what? <laughs> um, what? <I laughs> Who's thought... directing it? Oh, well, I don't Who's know. writing it? I have no what? idea. <laughs> uh, okay, so it's weird because um, the thing I was about to talk about was um, I watched uh, John Carpenter do an interview at the Fantasia Fest online oh. version the Q&A. Sure. And he did bring up that he had been talking with Blumhouse about a project and how he had been um, also roped into like Halloween and like these other people kind of approaching him about different things. So <laughs> I, uh, mm. <laughs> well, Halloween that is that Blumhouse or no, is that no, that's a different joint. Whoever still owns Halloween. I can't okay. remember the guy's name, David something, but um, uh, yeah, no, it's a different, it's a different thing, but just how he's kind of slowly coming back into some of these projects and how, I think Blumhouse had talked to him about something, but if it's what, why, why? <laughs> what for is Kurt Russell going to be there? Cause if not, why? Kind of doubt it. Well, and here's the problem. Can't. I'm sure that when John Carpenter made the thing mm -hmm. that was set out as let's make the coolest movie we can. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, right now Blumhouse is going, Let's set up an amazing series of films oh, that God. will yeah. get, you know, increasingly show shitty thing. as they go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it did make me wonder. I don't know if you guys remember about a year ago, I was talking about reading that uh, sci-fi channel sequel to the thing. I read yeah. the script for that. Yeah. And it was spectacular. Really? And I just, I was looking at this news going, oh, I hope they pull up that old script again. It was such a neat script. It'd be really neat. I don't know why we need to have a remake of this rather than just a sequel. I yeah. mean, the thing is a thing. It can be anywhere, right? It yeah. doesn't have to be in the Arctic. So Yeah, it could be in any kind of, hey, I got stuck down here until somebody wakes me up position right yeah. and and that sequel that sci-fi channel had they had it you know happening in the desert so it was kind That's of an cool. opposite thing nice. it, was, it was just a really great script it was way too good for the sci-fi channel <laughs> <laughs> then along came sharknado and they didn't care about anything anymore <laughs> right thank you asylum <laughs> <laughs> i i am not i think we've talked about this before long ago probably on there i'm not particularly against the concept of remakes I wish they'd start remaking movies that had good ideas but weren't executed well yeah. as opposed to amazingly well-made films. That's totally how I feel. But the market for some second-rate horror film that nobody's heard about because it wasn't executed well is not real strong. Yeah, that's the the, problem. the market for a remake of John Carpenter's The Thing is going to be huge. Right. Executive produced by John Carpenter. I just feel like now is such a good opportunity to take those like slightly more hidden properties because people are exposing themselves to more interesting content right now. No. Way old like New Yorker cartoon, I think it was, where some guy's flashing a, <laughs> a art. To expose yourself to art. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh, that's rough. Um, <laughs> But I feel like um, that's why I like so many weird comic book 
comic books are being turned into major like properties. Like Patrol and stuff. That's yeah. not a major... Yeah, or like The Old Guard, which is um, something I watched recently, which has got like freaking Charlize Theron in it. And it's like, the, what? Oh, yeah, that one. It sort of just yeah, got ignored completely. <laughs> well, I heard it was bad also. Um. Okay, here's yeah. the problem. <laughs> not to get too far into it. I was watching it and I didn't know it was a movie. I thought it was a series and it was episode one of a season. And so I was like, oh, this is okay. You know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of into it. It's got the beat. It has the perfect beats of a TV show, but then it went, it kept going. And I was like, man, this is a long introductory (laughs) episode here. And then it was the end of a film, but kind of on a cliffhanger. And I was like, Oh no. Next episode? What? <laughs> I I really it wasn't until I was at least two thirds the way through that I realized <laughs> that it was a movie. So Whoops. I think that that alone um is pretty problematic. And that probably I mean, if I was watching it as a movie, I would definitely have been like, What the hell? But since I was watching it as a TV show, it was a great <laughs> like first episode of a TV show. Wow. I was super new it. I was like, man, I can't believe Charlize like signed up for a whole season. I was like <laughs> Well, do we think that this was a film that was financed originally by Netflix that she knew was going to Netflix? I don't know. Or I, it felt like it was purposely a Netflix situation, or maybe it was at the, I don't know, like near the end of production, decided to be a Netflix joint. COVID it didn't. Victims. Yeah, exactly. It felt like it. I don't think it was ever meant to be in movie theaters. Interesting. But I can't remember. I think it was either... I looked it up and it was either the director or the writer was from TV. Well, the big news, of course, um, this week and last week was the um, the arrival of Lovecraft Country finally on it. Well, the big news, of course, um, this week and last week was the um, the arrival of Lovecraft Country finally on HBO. Right. And <laughs> I watched it as of this recording. There's been two episodes... The first episode, I enjoyed mostly a lot. There were a couple of things that I thought were a little weak. There was an awful lot of exposition going on in the dialogue. (laughs) Yes. And there were a couple of um, scenes of overacting that I was like, oh boy, I hope this is not the standard of acting we've got. Right. But overall, I thought that it looked gorgeous. I thought the monsters were okay. surprisingly cool looking and I, I thought it ramped up at the end of the episode and I thought it was really powerful. The statement it was making and all of these things, I was like, oh, sh- okay, shit, maybe my, maybe my favorite show this year. <laughs> um, Vanessa, I know I you seen watched the, second... the first episode. Yeah, I haven't seen the second episode. What do you think of the first episode? Um, so the first episode for me, it was definitely a mixed bag. Just like you, I thought it was beautiful. I thought the set pieces were great. I thought there were incredibly powerful moments, like yeah. when they're in that cafe and they realize it's been oh, painted. Man. No kidding. <laughs> um, this will make sense to you guys when you watch it. Uh, but... I also felt like there was so much front end development that I didn't know why I was like spending so much time in the city. And like, it's pretty easy to establish these characters in the positions they're in without having to spend that long in a early setup. So I just didn't know it felt baggy. And then when we suddenly go into Monsterville, I was like, Whoa, man, we hit this running. <laughs> Jesus. Um, the monsters were great. That kind of scene, there's a shack scene that worked yeah, beautifully, yeah. 
But and and then it ends on a nice little cliffhanger in the second part where I was like, okay, this could be going somewhere interesting. Yeah, Eric, you've seen fairly similar. I thought <laughs> I thought it started a little weird. It's like. Is this gonna be like Game of Thrones or something? Like oh. sex heavy? It seems like I don't really remember that from the book, but all right. I'm gonna start that way. But uh I mean establishing a world that we know very well, but a lot of people probably don't know Lovecraft to right. the level of where we do. So it had a lot of exposition that got a little tedious and okay, all right. Maybe if I didn't know anything about it, I might find this interesting, but I don't. I do so. <laughs> yeah. Let's go on. And uh, I did love the end. I love the. There's, those are like Shoggoths, I believe. I thought they did a great, interesting interpretation. Yeah, I don't think that. they were supposed to be Shoggoths, but they were kind of name checked as that. Yeah, yes. Uh, they were also thrown out. Uh, the whole vampire logic didn't really work for me. <laughs> oh yeah, that was that was weird. And it would. You know what? It would have worked great for me if they didn't say the word vampire. Yeah. And I, oh. I, was, I was like, oh, I mean, who's watching this film and they don't understand that if you get bit by this, you turn into one. Why do we have to kind of explain? This is the whole exposition thing. I'm that sounds like about a producer is, now. Well, it's like a vampire. Get it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Or two guys talking to each other who obviously know about, a lot about fantasy and horror books. Because look at him go, little Stoker-esque here, hasn't it? Or something, right. something along nice. that line and keep it and, more something else. Uh, Eric, you watched episode two? Okay. But, you know, I've read the books. I'm not worried about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, feel free to talk. I hated it. Really? <laughs> it was just like, what happened here? Oh, no. I, I mean, um, it felt to me very much like it went in kind of a Harry Potter direction. And Whoa. make Whoa. no mistake, uh, I think that there is room for a Harry Potter urban fantasy type story with an all black cast and all that. I think there's absolutely room for that. I don't feel like that's what I was sold with the first episode. Okay. And so that's why I am a little. And in the book, I don't remember much. There are scenes lines. in the second episode that are from the book, but they, they felt like they got Harry Pottered up to me hmm. and so the effects like... were not nearly as good. I, I don't know. I was just like, Oh no, what happened? Oh, so is there like, is any of the second episode scary at all? Like, is it got the deep, uh, the dark under current? Well, stuff? I mean, make no mistake. It's a, it's a dark story because of the subject matter. Okay. So, I mean, the subject matter sure. of the book is not monsters. It's, or it's not Lovecraft unworldly Lovecraft monsters. It's yeah. the monsters that they have to live with in their time frame, which yeah. are all uh. human. That almost, <laughs> takes a secondary step to the otherworldly monsters in the second episode. Mm -hmm. And it, it got, weird. it got weird. Almost like they didn't quite feel like they, um, like they could count on what they had set up in that first that episode. And so there, so somebody said more monsters and more magic and more lightning effects and more, you know, Magical so barriers and stuff like that. So I was like, oh boy. Now I'm not saying I'm not going to watch sure. to see where this goes, but I am a little disappointed. Mm. I remember reading a lot of the early interviews, you know, the, or the reviews where people that got first four or five episodes or something, a lot of them were, wow, that first episode. And oh crap, <laughs> oh, <laughs> the no. next few episodes. So mm. yeah. Well, I'll, I'll just say this. Uh, HBO knocked it out of the park with Watchmen. Yeah. Yeah. And this yeah. is no Watchmen. Yeah. So. Uh, 
That's yeah, which is too bad because the um, the trailer, the commercial for it looked it so good. good. I was just really pumped, but yeah, it's a bit unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, should we move well, on to our main subject? Or? No, let me just throw out a couple of things <laughs> really quick then. <laughs> All right. Fuck you all. Uh, <laughs> full disclosure, I've been drinking. <laughs> what? No. A big old discussion about not going too long. <laughs> Shit, I don't remember. 40 minutes ago? I don't remember what I was going to say anyway. All right. <laughs> Fuck you guys. But you got notes there. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I know. I'm not going to talk about Caddyshack 2, which was super disappointing. <laughs> what? what? And um, I'm not going to talk about the... Uh, the Pure Cinema podcast, which I know that we both listen to, um, and they did a Disasters episode just recently, what? and one of the guys brought up the Cassandra Crossing, which <gasps> was my episode yeah. when we did my. quarantine. It's been sat in my queue, ready to go. Oh, he loved it too, which really surprised me, so I'm not going to talk about any of that. Okay. But I thought you liked Chevy Chase, even though he's you know, become I did, a raging I did. dick. Yeah, that. Chevy Chase is an awful human, but he was funny in Caddyshack too. <laughs> <laughs> Everything else in Caddyshack 2 was really, really bad. <laughs> I'm, I'm not personally a big Caddyshack follower. Oh, make no mistake. The the first movie is not a good movie. Mm-hmm. It's Structurally, it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. It just falls apart. Characters are put together People just to this. have them on screen together. Like yeah. They realized as they were finishing shooting that they had Bill Murray and Chevy Chase in a movie and didn't have a scene with them. <laughs> so they wrote a scene that day for them to be in. And that's the scene you see in the movie. That's why it makes zero sense. Uh, and then the guy who wrote it, the original Caddyshack was the guy from national lampoon. And he died mysteriously right after he was heartbroken. The script that he wrote was not the movie they made, uh, but he did think that they had a really, really funny movie. And when it, bombed at the box office he and chevy chase took off to hawaii then uh and they did a ton of coke and had a good time chevy chase came home and this guy fell off a cliff or jumped off a cliff nobody really knows oh my god and it's just one of those weird things where you know this guy was a very funny guy who had issues and and then died very mysteriously right after this movie that he really wanted to succeed didn't succeed so So, yeah, and then Caddyshack 2 comes along like eight years later. Yeah. And, uh, you know, none of the original players except for Chevy Chase bumping in to collect a paycheck, I guess. <laughs> and even then, he was still the best part of the movie. He was he was very funny. Yeah. yeah. I'm so sad. Oh, my God. Because the National Lampoon guy died. Yeah. Some odd years ago. It's very, I, but I only just found out, so... There's a great documentary about it uh, that I can't remember what it was. but uh, the National Lampoon. It's a, it's a really long, weird title. But. Not that one. Oh. That one's about National Lampoon. There was a documentary about this guy. And oh, okay. I, I can't remember what it was. An unnecessary something. Hmm. And uh, really, uh-huh. really good. And it talked about all this stuff. So yeah. this is what I get when I've been drinking. I go out on it. <laughs> I go and say, guess what I'm not going to talk about? And then 40 minutes later, I'm like, are you guys ready to take a break? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. Sure. All right. We'll take a break. And then we're coming back with uh, Atours. Atours. 
This week at Macy's, get an extra 25% off the season's latest styles with your coupon or Macy's card. That's on top of already great savings, like 20 to 50% off Ink, DKNY, Clubroom, and more of your favorite designers for him and her. Get 30% off one pair, 40% off two pairs of boots, shoes, and booties. And prep your kitchen with 20 to 50% off roasting pans, cookware, and more. Plus, Star Rewards members earn rewards faster during Star Money Bonus Days, now at Macy's. Savings off regular sale and clearance prices. Exclusions apply. Oh, we've gone bananas for big banana in crayon. You learn to write a lot of ways. <laughs> oh, we've gone bananas for big banana in crayon. The colors are so bright and gay. Oh, you can learn to color, write smooth lines or fat. <laughs> Draw a banana and give it a hat. Okay, bunch, you'll go bananas for big banana in crayon. Back. Um, there's so much that I wanted to talk about. If, I don't know why it seems like there has been an inordinate amount of time that has passed since the last time we hung out together, but I wanted to talk about various comic books I've read, <laughs> complaints I had, things that were then figured out, and the, clump, the complaints are gone because I love how they turned out and shit like that. <laughs> but I will stick to the structure of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like it's been a long time because uh, i've certainly watched a lot more movies between now and then yeah than I did something would. happen i don't was know was the weather really bad or something it doesn't feel like the it was weather really was very good <laughs> yeah yeah mm. well i want to throw out before i get started a um a big hello to craig mullins who texts me every single time he listens to the episode yeah I hear Aww. that craig <laughs> And talks to me doing, buddy? during the episode, <laughs> saying, you know, oh, this is what I would have picked, and this is what I was thinking, this is what I think of that movie. <laughs> Judgmental. Eric talks too long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <I've... laughs> so, Craig, I hope that you're going to really enjoy this. The topic is auteurs, and the whole idea was that we pick a, um, a film director that we enjoy, or maybe don't enjoy, and we pick a movie, and then talk about them as an auteur. With that in mind, uh, ironically, this feels like one that will be a longer episode it will. too, because it's just such a rich subject. So, just, it's going to be really we'll just see hard. How it goes. <laughs> well, with that in mind, I chose Stuart Gordon. Yeah, and you'd think that I'd go with Reanimator or From Beyond or something like that. Yeah, but I did not. Good. I went with a film from 1987 called Dolls. a safe haven from the raging storm. It's an odd kind of place. Uh, who'd your folks get it from, Boris Karloff? Their hosts seemed like the essence of hospitality. Stay here as long as you like. Wonderful. But appearances can be very ah. deceiving. What's the matter? Afraid of the dark? Yeah. Are you scared? Well, of course not. What's there to be afraid of? This house. Oh, don't be. Sorry. You like toys. I'm a doll maker. I make the most wonderful toys. Dolls. 
puppets, soldiers, ballerinas. Nobody wants a doll that's special anymore, that's one of a kind. The weather brings out creativity. It helps me in my work. What kind of work is that? Witchcraft? <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa, I know you love creepy dolls. This no. is your favorite subject. I don't want it. <laughs> Can I leave and come back when you're done, please? <laughs> this is Stuart Gordon's third movie, except it was shot before From Beyond. So this, he shot Reanimator. He shot this. And then because of the extensive stop motion effects that had to be done, he was able to shoot From Beyond in between and get Whoa. it released before Dolls. Nice. So this is from 1987. It had a budget of $2 million and a box office of $3.5 million. Well, it, it made its money. Well, I mean, except we know what goes into promoting yeah, film. I know. And you probably you did not count poster it, costs. Yeah, exactly. The critics on Rotten Tomatoes have it at 64%, which seems pretty fucking good for a <laughs> low-budget horror film in the 80s. Yeah. And the audience only has it at 51%. Aww. Directed by Stuart Gordon, who did Reanimator, From Beyond, Robot Jocks, Pit in the Pendulum, Fortress, Castle Freak, Space Truckers, Dagon, uh, two episodes of Masters of Horror, and the movie that I thought I was going to choose from him, King of the Ants, because yeah. I remember really loving that. Yeah. And I got about halfway through watching it, and I was like, I hate this fucking movie. Oh, oh wow. No. Yeah. And I don't know why, except that I thought, Jesus, who's running the camera on this thing? It looks like shit. Huh. Guess what? Same cinematographer as Dolls, Reanimator, and From Beyond. Huh. Just having a Guess bad I day. I won't rewatch that one, because I remember liking it a lot, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's a very noirish film, and it's got mm -hmm. some weird stuff that is based on a book and all that stuff. Uh, I think that it was the 90s, and the cinematographer was like, you know... We're going handheld. Yeah. We're going to make this in your face. We're going to, yeah. you know, and it just, it just felt so little like a Stuart Gordon film that I couldn't use it as an example oh. of his, his stuff. So this was written by Ed Naha, who wrote Troll. <laughs> Beautiful. He wrote oh. Chud 2, oh. Bud the um, Chud. Oof. Oof. 
Um, he wrote Honey, I Shrunk the Kids with oh, no, Stuart Gordon. Yeah. Uh, also wrote Doll Man, tons of the Empire pictures like um, Evil Toys and, and stuff like Or, yeah, was that what it was called? Evil, Evil Toys? Toys? There um, is a movie called that. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> he also has written 15 novels. Holy shit. Including the novelizations for Robocop and Robocop 2. Oh, whoa. And it was co written by Ian Patrick Williams, who has a hundred credits, including every Stuart Gordon project. <laughs> Part of the club. Yeah, yeah. Wait a second. My notes are too tight together. No, it wasn't co written by Ian Patrick. Ian <laughs> Patrick is one of the stars of this. Ah. He has a hundred credits, including every single. Stuart Gordon Project, and most of his stuff is television from the 80s and early 90s. If you saw him, you would absolutely recognize him. He plays the dad in this. It also stars Carolyn Purdy Gordon, who was Stuart Gordon's wife until he died Hmm. just recently. She was in Reanimator from Beyond and every Stuart Gordon movie. Um, I, I... if you haven't seen this film, I don't know how to describe her. She's one of the head doctors in Reanimator. She's a very severe but pretty looking woman, and she plays kind of a similar role in From Beyond. And it, it's funny because I, I know her from like every single movie he's done. And then when I read that that was his wife, I'm like, oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> Did she, didn't she come to hit with him to the Lovecraft Festival one year? She was oh, there. She might have, yeah. I think she was. Yeah. I mean, obviously, she was. Well, 15 years later, but... <laughs> right, right. Uh, and then as the very young daughter, Carrie Lorraine, who was a child actor, she was in Poltergeist 2, Alf. Um, she went into... She basically gave up uh, being an actor very young, became a criminal defense lawyer. Wow. And then started just recently becoming a production manager on independent films. So clearly she's got a love for this <laughs> and uh, is still trying to... It will not stop. ...to hang out with the creative crowd. If you're a criminal defense lawyer, you're dealing with the worst fucking people in the world. <laughs> mm. So maybe she felt like, you know, I want to be with uh, with creatives and everything. Yeah. We've all been on film sets and they're lovely people. Uh, Most of the time. Except Sometimes. For, except for Vanessa. What? <laughs> I've this had... movie starts with people enough like of me. you. I'm talking. <laughs> people like me. <laughs> Uh, this starts with the introduction of, well, first of all, have either of you seen dolls? Vanessa, I'm guessing you have avoided God, no. it. <laughs> if it has a doll in the cover, I finally watched Chucky and that took like 30 something years for me to get around to. <laughs> oh, so long, long ago. I okay. don't remember much. Ugh. I mean, this is, uh, this was a video store regular. It had, like you said, the dolls, the, it's a close up shot of a doll with the eyes being pulled out and, uh, <laughs> it's... <laughs> They're going to get you for that. They don't <laughs> well, forget. They were, they were humanized, I think, in the cover, yeah. So it starts with the introduction of this uh, family of uh, the mother, the or the stepmother, the father, and the little girl. And they're driving in a big storm. Uh, it's David. It's Rosemary, who's the new wife, who's very severe. She's wearing furs and everything. You can tell that um, yeah. she's very uh, rich and snooty. Mm-hmm. And of course, Jody, the daughter. Eric just showed Vanessa the cover of Dolls. Oh God! <laughs> it's like a garbage pill kids meets my mom's collection. How dare you? <laughs> the car breaks down. 
and uh, they basically make their way in this storm and find a old dark house, and this turns into an old dark house film. Basically, mm-hmm. they're they're knocking on the door, nobody answers. They find a uh, basement window that they can pry open, and of course, as soon as they get in and shake the rain off themselves, the owners of the house show up kind of creepy older couple who are pointing a gun at them and they're like, you know, this is what we do to trespassers. And then the little girl's like, we tried to knock, but nobody would answer. (laughs) And and they're like, oh, come on in. (laughs) Um, So they they warm them up and feed them some dinner. And then uh, a few other people show up, a kind of um, a kind of. couple of trashy punk girls <laughs> who have somehow hooked up with a very nerdy man who's uh, not quite grown up. The 80s. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> why are you guys together? Um, one of the punk girls, though, you guys, is the girl from the Take On Me video by AHA. Oh. oh, she's so great. Okay. Yeah. Well. yeah. So... Uh, and the guy is very likable. He's a kid at heart. Uh, he connects very quickly with uh, Jody, the young girl, because it seems like he's got about that mentality, <laughs> or at least he's held on to his uh, his, youth. his youth. Yeah, his love of childlike stuff. She's got a doll, and he's like, "Oh, I love dolls and all this stuff." So, are these people who also came out of the rain? Yes. Okay. Got and it. so they've now they've all ended up. And so this is basically, if you're familiar with the dark old, or the old dark house trope, this is it. A group of strangers end up in an old dark house, and then something happens: murder, or ghosts, or in this case, or sweet transvestites. Sweet transvestites. Yes. <laughs> oh, I didn't even think of it. Regular picture show is such an old dark house. Um, the house is, of course. Full of these creepy little porcelain dolls. No. Hundreds of them lining the shelves in every room. I hate everything about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) And Jody, she picks out this kind of jester one that she likes. And the the old couple are like, oh, certainly you can take one of these to bed. It's because that uh, it's because her teddy bear got uh, destroyed in the rain when they were coming to the house. So she's got nothing to sleep with. And they're like, sure, you can have this. Um, so we know that she's going to be fine, but, uh, the two punk girls, they see all the old dolls and they're like grilling the old lady, you know, oh, is any of this stuff worth anything? Oh no. Because, you know, they're horrible people and they plan on robbing the place. Well, uh, they do try to rob the place, but guess what, Vanessa? The dolls come alive and stop them. Oh, you have seen this? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, the dolls come alive and stop them. Oh, sure. Amazing. Twist. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, everyone is shown their rooms for the night, which is weird because you'd think that, oh, here, we're going to stick the little girl with her parents and everything. No, she gets her own room in this creepy old house. And it's because we have come to learn that her dad is just as bad as his stepmother. He wants her gone, you know, the, the, the stepmother is rich and he wants this money that she's got and all that. And this kid is kind of an obstacle to all of this. So she gets her own room. Everybody else gets to share a room except for the nerdy guy who gets his own room and everything. The dolls start to kill all the bad people. They start with the girls uh-huh. because the girls are trying to steal things. Sure. 
and then uh, they move on to the the dad and the stepmom, and of course, all of this stuff is happening, you know, one by one, and everybody then comes together because somebody is missing, mm-hmm. and of course, the little girl has seen the dolls moving on their own, and she's trying to tell them everything, and the dad <laughs> and the stepmother are like, "You're such a fucking liar! Can't wait for you to be gone!" You know, and, uh, yes, they're going to be putting her in a home and all of this shit. The only person who believes her, the old lady. No, the nerdy guy. <gasps> The old lady and the guy they're who lived there, it. of course they're in on it. Uh, so are are the dolls like using their own interior doll power and ultra strength or are they getting weapons or do they have little doll size weapons? They have doll size. Well, yes. All of it. All of the above. Okay, got it. <laughs> they, they use various <laughs> weapons. They do seem to be really, really strong based on their size and the size of the humans. <laughs> In fact, a couple of them take one of the girls <laughs> and they've got her on the floor and they proceed to grab her by her shoulders and then like use her head as a battering ram on the wall. And I cannot see kill this her movie. that way. I cannot see it. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, these dolls are fucking strong. <laughs> all of them are. I mean, you've seen all the dolls in this house. If one of them falls over, they just fucking break apart. It's like, God damn it. There's $50. <laughs> Well, the dolls in this home are like action figures, aren't they? Oh, God bless you. If you could just talk to my mom and explain that to her, that'd oh, be great. I've had this conversation. It's fine. <laughs> I got you. Um, so, you know, that's basically the entire story of this film. The reason I chose it is it's got all of the tropes of a Stuart Gordon film. And he set these tropes up very early on. He likes horror. Mm-hmm. It's got to be gory. It's got to be funny. <laughs> it's got to have sex in it. <laughs> yeah. Sounds about right. And it's got to look great. This movie looks like a million bucks. Considering it was shot in the late 80s and everything, it's got some really great stop motion effects in it. The dolls are a mixture of puppets and stop motion photography. Really, really cool stuff. The cinematography is great. That's why it was such a shocker to see the same name on King of the Ants. But it was clear that he was just trying to do something different. Yeah. Um, There is a little bit of naughtiness in this. Probably not as much as (laughs) Reanimator and From Beyond. There's not a lot of movies that have more naughtiness than Reanimator. (laughs) And From Beyond at times. Uh, Stuart Gordon has said that he thinks sex and horror sit right next to each other on a bookshelf. And so this is his stuff. He's never talked about the fact that uh, his films have, you know, I guess you'll call it kind of a wicked sense of humor. They all seem to be, everybody in the film seems to be kind of in on the joke, or at least the people who need to be. In Reanimator, Herbert West is in on the joke of the film. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, and from beyond, that one's a little more straight, but I think it's, um, uh, why can't I think of his name? The, the doctor who goes beyond and then yeah. comes back. Yeah. He's in on the joke. In this one, it is the old couple who are kind of there as not judges, but more like caretakers of the judges. The dolls are going to judge you. And <laughs> when you die... You become a doll. One of the dolls, yes. Aww. So that's why this place is full of these dolls. Oh, uh, 
so the punk girls are like little punk dolls. Yeah, they actually. I That's mean, at the cool. end, we see a picture of the horrible people: <laughs> the mom, the step, or the stepmom, the dad, and the punk girls, and they're all tiny little dolls. And oh, everything. that's so, good. That's a good ending. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a really interesting thing. Once I got into this movie, I've I've always liked this movie. I really like this movie after doing a little bit of research on it because there is a crazy amount of backstory given on all the dolls that is never mentioned in the film. What? Some of them uh, are criminal humans who ended up like sure. the people in this film. Some of them are fairies. Mm-hmm. And that's why some of them have powers that don't seem to be working the way that others do. Some of them are just like dragging people around. Another clearly have some kind of witchcraft powers and everything. And then the original first two dolls are brought to life strictly by the witchcraft of the old couple. So I thought that was really neat. And the best part is those criminally or the, the criminal humans that become dolls. Some of these dolls get broken and like their faces break away and inside are tiny rotting skeletons <gasps> that are the size of the dolls. And you're like, what is going on here? It's just a, it's cool. just a crazy looking movie. It's so much fun. Uh, Brian Usna was the producer on this. He would, uh, he would go back to the well with demonic toys and puppet master for this. And it appears that there is a remake of this film from 2019 oh. that has kind of a similar storyline and the same title, but I couldn't find it as much as I searched for it. And you know that wow. I have uh, I have avenues <laughs> where I can find movies. I couldn't I couldn't find Dolls 2019. Hmm. Maybe like was it a was it a COVID situation? Uh, no idea. Okay. The storyline is slightly different, but it's similar enough. And with a similar title, I have to imagine it is a remake of this film. Mm. Otherwise, somebody would say, hey, got to call that <laughs> uh, something else. <laughs> so that's my movie. Uh, Stuart Gordon is my auteur. I love him. Yeah. Rest in peace, Stuart. Uh, you might think that Stuart passed away years ago. He passed away in February of this year. Wow. Yeah. It only seems like years ago. How many <laughs> yeah. films... Are credited to him. Oh my God, I don't have that information, lot. but uh, but yeah, I would dozens. love to know. Yeah. He's well, I mean, if only we had a handheld computer that yeah, I know, right? The mysteries of the world <laughs> but, available to um, us. My laptop has no internet. And we're we're lucky enough to like meet him. Yeah. And he is, you know, people always say, "Oh man, they're just the nicest guy." Jesus. He was the oh nicest guy. He's adorable. <laughs> he shows up at the Lovecraft Film Festival. Of course, there he's going to be a god. Yes. And he's yeah. going to be just, you know, swamped by all the fans. And he was. And he, he took the time to talk to everybody who Aww. came to talk to yeah. him and all that. It was oh, my just, God. Yeah. Uh, 22 directing and writing credits. Okay. Yeah. I just thought of that when you were naming movies. Like, Didn't he do Stuck? And yes, he did do that one. Yeah, I looked at Stuck. I, I didn't love that movie. And it's not. A, that's why I wasn't sure if it was Stuart Gordon or not. I don't think it would have been a good representation of right his of his of his style and everything. But if you haven't seen some of the other ones I listed off, like Robot Jocks is kind of a um, a mini masterpiece. Yeah, it's story wise and structure wise, it's better than Pacific Rim. <laughs> I'm so excited to see that movie. Uh, Eric, you saw Pit and the Pendulum just recently. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's great. Fortress good. doesn't hold up as well as I thought it would. I saw that in the theater. Uh, but Castle Freak and Space Truckers and Dagon, uh, he's Dagon. got a real style that you're kind of like, oh. And I think I think a lot of it just comes from his love of the genre. Right. Yep. So. Very true. 
Very cool, man. Okay. Well, that's a tough act to follow for sure. Um, so I'm sure everybody assumes that they know who I would pick. I know who I would normally pick for this particular, <laughs> for this particular uh, subject matter, but I've got, I've got a little story <laughs> on my first day. So I used to do this thing because um, people are, are snobs and kind of dicks. And so entering into the film industry as a young, young lady, you get asked a lot of trick mm. questions just to, so you can get judged, right? Like so gate, gatekeepers kind of totally, yeah. totally gatekeeper questions. So on my first day of rea a reality TV show, I had two guys I was working with who I'm now friends with, but at the time they were being dicks, and they did a red, red robin at lunch of who is your favorite director, and so one of them said Hitchcock, of course. Of course. One of them said Spielberg, and they're going on about like how. That's a little surprising. Well, I mean Jaws, and I know, but a lot of Spielberg from the art house film crowd gets a lot of. It was uh, there was he's you an take older a few guy. of his films aside, yeah, and then Spielberg. Oh, he's just a commercial director. <laughs> so it was just one of those moments where, of course, I'm supposed to pick out got whatever, and I have my like artsy answer, which um, I always used to bring out. But in that moment, I was like, oh yeah, no, my favorite, <laughs> my favorite director is Roland Emmerich. And the two dudes just stopped and stared at me in total disbelief. Eric, can you add a needle scratch in when she <laughs> says that? Right. That was 100% the look I got. They were just like, no, that's not allowed to be an answer. He's rubbish. And I was like, have you seen his movies? They are amazing. So... Um, in sp the spirit of that, as much as I love John Carpenter and he is my favorite director, I think Roland Emmerich needed a nice, a nice little moment from me. Just, just because I'm curious, what was your art? My art answer is Buster Keaton. Oh, okay. yeah. Who I nice. also obsessively love. I watched just as many films of his as I could get a hold of in film school. And yeah, Buster, right. Buster's great. Buster's awesome, but... Uh, he's no Roland Emmerich. He's no Roland Emmerich. He's the Roland Emmerich of his day. He threw himself down waterfalls and almost yeah, died yeah. many times. So, you know. Uh, so the film that I'm choosing to kind of represent Roland Emmerich, and it's hard because I feel like he is pretty consistent, um, but I'm going to go with the 2004 picture, The Day After Tomorrow. Friend. What can we do? Save as many as you can. 
storm is just going to get worse. What should we do? I will come for you. Do you understand me? This was going to be a Godzilla episode. Oh, you know, but that would have been an interesting conversation. Exactly. I and I'm. Uh, he has so many great ones to go with. Hold on, just one second here, guys. I forgot. I, one I, I remember this one. Did see this one in the theater? Even you know the day after tomorrow. It was a, it's a fun ride. You actually went and saw it. Oh hell yeah! So a couple of movies, in case you guys, anyone out there doesn't know, but I, I imagine everyone who's listening to our podcast does know. Um, he's listed as a director on, I had to pull up IMDb because I didn't actually type this all out, uh, 21 <laughs> projects, um, many of which he wrote and directed. But starting with, um, he's German, so he started with Das Ark Noah Prinzip which is the Noah's Ark principle. Then he did Moon 44. And then by kind of accident, he got Universal Soldier, Stargate, Independence Day, Godzilla, The Patriot, Day After Tomorrow, 10,000 BC, 2012, something we don't want to even mention in here because it's so off base for him. <laughs> White House Down, another Independence Day. We won't worry about that. And Midway. So uh, he's definitely prolific and he has a very uh, specific style. So Day After Tomorrow, Big, bombastic, huge picture, end of the world style. And he does go bigger or go home with the uh, film shortly after that, 2012. It, this particular film got 44% from critics, 50% from uh, audience, from Rotten Tomatoes. I think that's a little low. I was a little surprised. I think maybe in retrospect, people are like, actually, he's not that good. But it wasn't really the day after tomorrow. It was, it was the day after the after. It was like a tomorrow. couple of weeks. It was weeks. the day after yesterday. Oh. Shit makes it today. today. Motherfucker. <laughs> Everything's Never mind. happening. Never mind. You know what? We don't like Dennis Quaid after all. Um, the budget was $125 million and the box office for this was $552.6 million. So this was that a success. That sounds like a hit. Yeah. It did really freaking well. Yeah. Um, He's not much of a box office success usually. <laughs> Actually, yeah, definitely. And that is 100% one of the things that he is known for. Um uh, he made, let's see, the Independence Day was the first film to gross a hundred million in less than a week. So the, he just was constantly like breaking records. Um, Stargate was the highest grossing opening weekend for any film released in October up until that point. Uh, <laughs> he's just, he's very known for bringing in the big bucks. He wrote and directed uh, Day After Tomorrow. It stars um, Dennis Quaid as Jack Hall. Uh, you may remember Dennis Quaid from such greats <laughs> as adult Ethan in a dog's purpose or general Hawk in GI Joe, the rise of Cobra. Oh yeah. Is that he the also, one we saw in the theater? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he was also an uncredited extra in, um, uh, the graduation ceremony portion of stripes. So, you know, 
That kid, maybe, maybe he'll make it one day. Uh, <laughs> Celia Ward, who plays his oh, ex, uh, kind of estranged wife. We're not sure if she's divorced or not. Um, she plays Lucy Hall, and she was President Lanford in Independence Day Resurgence. Jake Gyllenhaal, I'm, you know, I'm not, I know these are rare, weird names that I'm just throwing <laughs> out there, but uh, he plays Sam Hall, their son. Uh, he was Jimmy Livingston in Bubble Boy, which I actually have not seen. And he was Dastan in Prince of Persia, Sands of Time. He also was the killer in a short film called The Shoes, Time to Dance, which was a pretty recent piece for him. It, uh, Jake is a hard one to make fun of for this particular bit because he's in a lot of just good stuff. Oh, yeah. He doesn't do a lot of not good stuff, even as like a kid. So, he's, yeah, he's yeah. actually a really good actor. I, I, he's so freaking good. Ugh. Very smart at what he predicts. What he picks. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I yeah, know. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm then, glad you brought up Prince of Persia. Man, that's shit. I know, right? He's <laughs> <Yeah>. been <laughs> in really a lot of good bad. movies. That's not one of them. But exactly. <laughs> I had to dig. Um, Emmy Rossum, who is this love interest who's Sam's crush. Um, she is an opera singer and also the uncredited caroler, caroler number one in Mr. Robot episode 401. She also stars in Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. Ian Holm uh, plays Terry Robson. He's like another clientologist, um, science, scientist. He plays uh, Gordon in the Frighteners TV series and Pod in the 1993 TV series Return of the Borrowers. I didn't realize there was a Frighteners TV series. I didn't either. I was super surprised. <laughs> it was at least half a season long. Wow. So. You know, <laughs> and uh, we also had a couple of other people in here, very recognizable uh, people's faces flashing before your eyes. But there's also Kenneth Walsh, who plays definitely not Dick Cheney. <laughs> Don't worry about it. The story follows um, basically a giant client climate, climate, climatic, Climactic? Clim no. Oh. Oh, climate, climate disaster, disaster um, that basically ends the world as we know it. Um, the plot surrounds Antarctic research station starts off with them drilling for cores. They want to get definitive proof about global warming midway into their little drilling. The entire like Antarctic iceberg breaks in half giant scene of trying Oops. to <laughs> jump around and not die. There's a lot of those in this film. <laughs> the cores do reveal that a large-scale global event is going to threaten the world in, let's say, 100 to 1,000 years. Uh, we follow Jack Hall, um, who's a paleoclimatologist, who is going to this kind of um, uh, conference in Delhi, speaking about the warnings of, of just being aware that this is coming to a giant kind of audience of different power people in the world. And, of course, the vice president of the United States is like, well, you know, what's really in danger is the economy. So, you know what? Maybe we don't worry about this because the economy is just as threatening. He's not wrong. He's How times wrong. change. Right? Oh, <laughs> definitely not something that I was like, man, we really all forgot about this movie. We, like, remembered it in the moment. Then we really moved on. And now we're like, ah. 
Let's not think about it too hard. Um, Jack is super obsessed with his work at the cost of his family. He's definitely estranged from his wife. His son really can't stand him. He's consistently chosen science and work over his family. So this becomes really clear when he goes to grab his uh, son, Sam, and take him to the airport. He is, of course, late because he was busy looking at some maps or some shit. Sam is... um, the beautiful Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, he's off to a New York academic decathlon because he has a crush on a girl. Um, meanwhile, a buoy off the Atlantic is saying that it's very cold. And Ian Holmes is like, man, it's really cold. We should probably care about this. <laughs> Everything's not so good. And it turns out that that ice age that might hit within a hundred to a thousand years is actually going to hit like this week. What? The day after tomorrow? Not right. tomorrow, but... The like day the day after. Okay. Yeah, first but we have to get... definitely this week. <laughs> Sam's got to get to New York. He has to participate in the decathlon. And then day after. He, they sleep, and then the next day is when it happens. So definitely day after tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so that's exactly what uh, Sam does. Um, uh, and he, he, of course, gets stuck in New York because things start to get a little weird. There's a giant like tornado session in LA that rips apart a bunch of buildings. And everyone's like, oh, shit. <laughs> LA is falling apart. <laughs> Running around. How, how was that again? <laughs> I was doing a Jimmy's. No, I know. I want to hear it again. <laughs> oh, Barb. Get the kids in the house. Perfect. There's a tornado coming. Perfect. Thing. <laughs> You're welcome. Anytime. So, uh, <laughs> Japan is also suffering from giant, like, football-sized um, hailstorm coming through. And we've got the, the scientists up in Scotland who are trying to get this information to everybody that, oh, no, seriously, a giant frozen climate is making its way and actually um one of the scientists kisses kids goodbye or his his newborn child and his wife and sends them on his way knowing that this is probably the last time he will ever see them he has got to maintain the post in scotland and make sure the world knows along with ian holm that uh things are not going well it's a global disaster somebody send my kids away and I'll just hope sit, they'll be all right. Sit put. I was also wondering about that. Um, I was like, I hope that they go somewhere. <laughs> he good. falls into the Stevie, <laughs> the Stevie Nicks. Oh yes, definitely lighthouse situation. A hundred percent. The fog. It's like, look, looks like everything's going to be horrible and everyone's going to die. Uh, but so, I'll stay here. In fairness, he's not wrong because everything north of like the middle of the U.S. up in the world like on that latitude longitude divide um, is freezes over and they uh-huh. are all basically so if dead. You go south, so okay. if you go south, you will have a better chance, okay. but they still have like tsunamis, which is what comes from New York. Giant tsunami comes through. Um, there's a very dramatic scene of Sam trying to save the girl who's helping. Oh my God. A girl who's helping a, a woman get out of a taxi cab and she needs her bag and she goes back for it. But down the street, there's a giant tidal wave coming. Run! But uh, she doesn't because she's trying to get the bag. So he runs after her, gets her and brings her back into the New York Public Library before the tsunami hits them, which I think is very interesting that tsunamis do not move faster. I feel like I was lied to because you know well i mean i'll just put this out there i don't think the science in this film is 100 percent accurate you might not be wrong i mean i do recall them like running away from, from the cold freezing. yes and from... closing a door and yes. escaping yes. the cold exactly so, there was a cold front 
Yeah, I think that's, you're actually making my point. So, um, yes. Yeah, so basically, a group of survivors are now uh, huddled up in the New York library. Um, Sam manages to get a hold of his dad, and his dad promises him, I am coming for you, son. I'm going to make my way across the soon-to-be frozen tundra of the upper half of the United States, and I will save you. Sam then has to learn to take charge. Um, the girl that he has a crush on got a cut on her leg, which, of course, becomes infected so him and a little group of people go out to a ship grab some medical supplies they're chased by wolves then they're chased by the freezing cold which is threatening to freeze them in their tracks but they manage to run down the hall in time and close the door on the cold cold, which stops it which is so good which is paralleled because Dennis Quaid is doing the exact same thing where he's at it's just beautiful but with a Wendy's Well, remind me, where did these wolves come from? Um, They're from the zoo. So all the animals in the zoo get loose. Right. But they like form a little angry pack. I get it. And the cold doesn't affect them because... It does, but it's not like... The freeze doesn't come until after they escape the wolves. Um, so there's I just feel some... like these were questions that were brought up in the pitch room. And uh, like, Emmerich was like, down. they're Arctic wolves. That's it. Yeah, but that's like, not it. Oh, Doesn't fuck. matter. I will say this is the guy that made Independence Day. Just nod. Don't worry about <laughs> it. Don't worry about. It. And the other thing I will say is there's very potentially answers from listening to the commentary. I didn't listen to a lot of it, but there was a lot that was cut out. Like probably a third of the film more. Because every single scene he was talking about how there was more to it to explain certain things, but they had to cut it at the last minute or they brought back like the entire Japan Hill scene apparently is this big storyline that got cut. Of course, there was the part. So it was football sized hail. (laughs) Yes. Which was ironic because they were Japanese and they were actually at the time making hail the size of footballs. Where are you going with this? They were making Football's the size of hail. They were miniaturizing football. What are you even doing right it's now? It's time for that record scratch sound again. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I'm just going to keep going. So um, like any other really good Roland Emmerich film, we have a lot of sort of building action, building suspense. And of course, there's lots of diff- different little groups of people all over. So you have like even astronauts up in space. You've got Dennis Quaid's people. You've got his son. Um, oh, my God. I'm already forgetting the actor's name. Jake Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal's people. We've got the Scottish people. Um, So we have all these little ensembles that are showing us all the different effects of this giant event. Dennis Quaid, of course, makes it and helps save his son. The world has now changed forever. There's a bunch of people who had to flee to Mexico. All that kind of stuff. So... I love these movies because like, well, we made it. I mean, millions of people died, but we didn't know them, so it's fine. Well, it's actually really funny because they're like, oh, nobody really survived in New York. And there's even this like little group of people that went out into the cold and didn't listen to Sam. And like, of course, the consequences, all these people froze to death um, in their tracks. And it's really sad. Um, But at the end, when um, these giant helicopters come to save like all the people that survived in the library, which is maybe like 20 people, you see all these other helicopters and you're like, well, what are they going to do? There's only like one group that survived in all of New York, <laughs> but no, they land. And then all these little groups of people come out on the rooftops oh, and it's very nice. like warming. Uh, remind me, was this like just a, this was just a one-time event or the world has completely changed and 
And the weather is fine now to live on? Kind of, yeah. So it's like this giant thing was coming and it was part of global warming and it was like this sort of epic response weather-wise, but it sort of evened itself out. It's just that the North Pole is now in a different place. Like all the poles have shifted. That's happening right now, you guys. (laughs) I don't know if you guys are It's probably not the day after tomorrow. Uh, Apparently (laughs) it's happened uh, on the planet a couple of times where the poles have reversed. I have heard that. We're in the middle of that right now. Are we really? Yeah. Oh. So it, it's it's one of those things that I'm watching and going, well, how long does it take? Because they don't really know. Yeah. They're like, it could take a year or it yeah. could take a thousand years. And this like, one is super fantasyville. Like yeah. it's it's 100% like, wouldn't it be crazy? Well, my question is, if it takes a year, that seems yeah. like a lot of change in a year, yes. right? Yeah. Does anyone survive a year of the polar? I think the people who are lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time survive, but like our entire society as we know it, like all of Europe is dead. <laughs> so okay, well the equator's be, good, but everybody else. Yeah, is basically in anyone in the equator. Not to be too south. on brand, but how does yeah. Washington State come out on this? Oh, not good. Uh, oh, fuck. Which is funny because right now we're actually in a really good position for global warming because yeah. we're going to become like a nice tropical landscape. And everywhere else is going to become either a desert or... Anyway, um, so the things I really like about this film, um, the very typical stuff for Emmerich, um, incredible, actually this film specifically has incredible CGI, just absolutely stunning CGI work. Um, They did a lot of photorealism, especially of like 3D modeling of New York City, where they were taking pictures and placing them and kind of modeling it after them. They did use something like 10 different post houses, including ILM to get this done and it's just beautiful like even watching it again i i did have the blu-ray copy so that maybe helped but i remember i I was pretty worried that it was going to age poorly it did not it looks great um has really good acting dennis quaid and jake gyllenhaal and ian holmes all just fucking throw themselves at this movie the warmth of the relationships and the tender moments are just so nice like there's a lot of like little build up and release build up and release like comedy tension, comedy tension. And I'd say, if anything, Roland Emmerich's like the master of pacing. I feel like he does such a good job of, of building and releasing. There's a really sad Scottish scene that I love in this when they, they all know they're going to die and they have like one last glass of whiskey together. And they're like, maybe we can power the generator with it. And Ian Holmes is like, no, that's the that's the good stuff. And he gets out the glasses and they all pour and then the generator goes out and you just know. Anyway, and the and the one guy's like, I want I just wanted to see my daughter grow. And he, the Ian Holmes is like, Well, at least she will grow. Man. Yeah, it's rough. Deep melodrama. Um, the, the, every bit of giant climactic, um, weather related events are great. There's the freeze scene is great. The tornado scene is great. The opening scene of the ice cracking is great. The, there's a really good Mexican border joke where everybody's like <laughs> jumping over the border. Cause they don't want to wait for like the guards to let them through. So all these people from the U S are with their suitcase going through the Rio Grande, <laughs> which is one of the few shots they actually did in real life. They had all the extras just like wade their way through. Um, which I think is very, I, I feel like we all forgot about that joke. Cause that was hilarious at the time. And now we're like, let's build walls. I'm like, no, you don't. What happens when the ice comes? We need to be able to cross that shit. That's a good point. 
Um, really good writing. I think that they super increased the stakes throughout. Um, Who wrote this again? Was it? It was Roland Emmerich. Emmerich. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But um, has uh, one of the one of my nice little pieces of trivia in here will actually bring that to better light. Oh, yeah. um, the tropes that we have in here that I think. Um, oh, the thing I didn't like didn't like about it. There's only one thing. The science. The science is real bad. <laughs> uh, close your eyes and hum when you think about the science. Uh, <laughs> the tropes. Um, point of view. Seeing scenes through characters' eyes, even if it is super brief. He always introduces a setup and a scene. So you might be seeing, oh my gosh, like Japan, there's giant like hailstorm. But they're going to introduce you very brief- briefly to a character who's like in a very real humanist moment. He's running late to meet with his wife. He's on the phone. He's lying about where he is. And then the hail starts and uh, you start, you suddenly have a character you can identify to, even if it is so brief, watching him like run across with his suitcase up, trying to prevent his head from getting hit, seeing a bunch of people underneath a car. And so he rushes for the car, but he gets hit and he dies. So like just these little moments because you're connected, you're instantly, the stakes are so much higher for us as a viewer which I really love ensemble characters are super fun. Like he always makes these fun little groups of people, uh, the, uh, massive odds being stacked against people and that causing this sort of humanist connection of us to them, whether it's independence day where it's like the fucking alien, like they're so big. The ships are so big. We should not win this battle. Like it doesn't make any sense. And yet we do because we, come together and we figure it out. And of course there's family. Uh, just, he often has this sort of like disjointed family unit where things are not as they should be, or somebody made some kind of mistake along the way. Um, and there's of course the save the dog. He loves to save the dog. Dogs do not die in a Roland Emmerich film, as far as I am aware. So a couple of fun pieces of trivia just about this film. Um, it's inspired by Coast to Coast AM talk show host <laughs> Art Bell mm. and Whitley Stryber's book, The Coming Global Superstorm. Uh, Stryber also uh, worked on the film's novelization. So that's a weird head trip because Emmerich then wrote the script based off of this book. And then Stryber wrote the novel- novelization of the film. So that was kind of cool. To choose um, the studio to, to figure out who was going to get behind this, basically Michael Wimmer um, created an auction. He sent a copy of the script to all the major studios along with a term sheet. They had All the studios had 24 hours to decide if they wanted to get on board. Fox Studios was the only studio to accept the, uh, the terms. Interesting. So, huh, weird. Yeah, it was a weird way to do it, but I think it's pretty smart. Instead of saying, okay, let's wait and see if anyone wants us. It's like, okay, well, you guys either want us or you don't I mean, go. Yeah, it's a gamble, though. This is not yeah. something new. Um, yeah. I think it was Alex Proyas who did the uh, Halo script and oh, basically yeah. sent it with the guys in the armor and basically oh. said, you have two hours to read the script. And everyone just was like... <laughs> Fuck it. Well, I think everybody bailed on it. Yeah, yeah, that's why we don't have a Halo movie. Is there like wow? So it's a yeah. it's a gamble to pull those kind of you know gimmicks. But I I appreciate that this one worked. I think I and the other thing is he's a known entity at yeah. that point. So <laughs> had a success record. Yeah, yeah it kind of makes sense. Like, hey, you're either like with us or you're not. Like, let's not play this game. Um, but yeah, I do think you're right. I think it's a huge gamble and I'm kind of surprised it worked out. Um, but I'm very glad for Fox because obviously they made a lot of money. Uh, there's 416 visual effects shots in this film. 
Um, that there seems were, incredibly low. It does. Yeah. I know. I I was also surprised. There's over a thousand artists who worked over a year creating just the visual effects. There was a 13 block size model, 3D model of Manhattan, which was textured um, using over 50,000 scanned photos. Oh. It was criticized for the writing and the scientific inaccuracy. Really? Very (laughs) odd. Um, Scientists, uh, this is actually a nice little story. So (laughs) (laughs) when paleoclimatologist William Hyde of Duke University was asked on Usenet if he would see the film, he answered that he would... He would not. Uh, he would not see it unless someone offered him a hundred dollars. Subscribers to the news group took up the challenge, and despite Hyde's protests, raised the hundred dollars. <laughs> Hyde's review on Google Groups criticized the film's depiction of weather, which stopped at national borders, um, <laughs> and it was uh, and said it was to climate science as Frankenstein is to heart transplant surgery. Wait a second now. What? <laughs> <laughs> he said that the day after tomorrow is to clients that climate science as Frankenstein is to heart transplant surgery. Talking about that documentary Frankenstein, nineteen thirty-one. <laughs> you know what? I don't want to break gone your with heart. Brain surgery for that one, but you know, hey, that's I, me. You know, hey, man, I'm not going to change this guy's words. <laughs> Um, and I will just, I, I did a lot of research on Roland Emmerich and I don't want to, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I will say he's a really incredible dude. And a couple of things that really surprised me about him that I had heard that maybe he was an asshole, which is why I didn't really want to look him up, <laughs> but actually he's like an active campaigner for the LGBT community and is openly gay, which I did not realize he I has didn't a, realize that either. yeah, he's got a, he's married to his partner. Um, he pledged over $150,000 to legacy project in 2006 which is dedicated to gay and film uh, gay and lesbian film preservation he's given the largest donation to date um, to a, a program called outfits he actually dealt with overt racism when he cast will smith in independence day yeah and he just was like fuck off and then um there were also people who were reluctant to show an interracial couple in the day after tomorrow which is that um scottish scientist who said goodbye to his baby his wife was white and he's black um and i guess like what year was this this was 2004 we've got good lord man people who are worried about interracial couples in 2004 yeah isn't that stupid i mean come on you saw star wars how many interracial couples ended what? up out of that? Star Wars? Yeah. Star Trek? No. Most recent Star Wars. I'm sorry. Was Finn able to get with oh, a white girl? Oh, I Or was see. he put with a black girl? I thought you were talking about the fact that uh, Han Solo was supposed to have had a Wookiee white. <laughs> according yeah. to yeah. canon. Really? Before. You're not fucking with me? I mean, I would always fuck with you, but I'm not this time, <laughs> as far as you know. I, I, I'm going to be very confused and say I'm not sure where we stand at Ron this. Forbick and Danny Wilford can check my, my facts here. Um, uh, Emmerich is the 15th highest grossing director of all time. He's got three billion, he's made three billion worldwide and just over one billion U.S. on his films. And um, his house is adorned in really weird shit. There you go. 
You listed off his films, yeah. and I was like, okay, here's a ton of films that I wouldn't necessarily say were great movies, right. but I liked like 90% of them. They were just so fun. <laughs> this is the thing. Like, I think that there's, I've always felt like there's good films and there's enjoyable films. Yes. And I think it's really unfair to say that an enjoyable film is just straight up not worthy. I think it Absolutely. can be, I think it can be worthy because of its artistic integrity but not enjoyable but i can think i also think it can be enjoyable but not good and artistic and i think that his films really fall into that he makes specifically popcorn movies he wants people to be entertained and he knows it and he said it yeah not not just popcorn uh blockbuster i mean geez you listed off those films some of those i didn't realize were him wow holy cow this guy has made a lot of money for a lot of people, you know, hearken on things like Godzilla or Independence Day Resurgence, but the, he freaking made Universal Soldier, which was kind of given to him on accident. Like he came over um, to do a different film project, which fell through, and uh, the director for Universal so- Universal Soldier stepped back, and he was offered it, and he stepped into that, and mm-hmm. that just he hit the ground running. You know, I just, he's got a really good record. And I think it's really unfair to look at him and say, oh, well, he doesn't have any worth because he did some, a couple of really good films, you know, fun films, but no really artistic films. I mean, he wants to do artistic things sometimes. (laughs) That's why Anonymous exists. I hate it, but it exists. Is it artistic? Yeah. Are there zero It's very drama. I don't remember any explosions. Mm. There's a, I remember there was a scene where somebody's running through a hedge maze. Is it Will Smith? No. <laughs> is it Ben Affleck? <laughs> no. Fuck. I know. That's why Patrick Wilson? No. And I'm watching it then. I, it's not that. It's like a, have you seen Mary Queen of Scots? It's no, like in that no. same vein. True. No. All right. Yeah. So anyways, that was my pick. Boy. Well, you nailed one of my major opinions of films is that there's artistic great films and there are films that are just fun to watch. And if you yeah. can't enjoy those, maybe you should try another thing yeah, <laughs> other I than mean, film. Because come on, man. Exactly. There are so many movies that I've seen that I know are good, but I did not enjoy. But I know they're good. I'm not yeah. going to say they're not good films. They're artistically incredible. Most of the Oscar picks, like pretty much anything that's won the last few years, I've just been like, man, that was really good but i never want to see it again (laughs) but you know what sometimes we just need to enjoy ourselves so i'm glad that somebody else out there feels the same way i do because i've definitely been argued with against my particular take yeah you're here all righty so another drink yeah get it going a can of wine that's a little uh, little bubbly (laughs) (laughs) all righty so Speaking of artsy, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I probably am leaning far more in that direction with my pick of uh, Dario Argento. Yeah, I don't know. He is both artsy, but he's also kind of like soap opera-y. Well, in Italy, mm-hmm. he is a giant director. Yeah. I mean, he is hugely popular. When he, wanted, when he makes a new movie there, I don't know if it still happens because his last few movies have not been good. I thought he was dead. I don't. Is he not dead? I don't know. Okay. Wait a second. No. Did he just do a a Dracula? Did he just do Dracula? Dracula. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's not good. He hasn't had a good movie in I would say probably fifteen years, maybe. I didn't mean to shit on your hauteur. No, no, he's he's falling apart. But he used to 
get front page news coverage when he was going to start a new movie and stuff. And really, he was a giant. And this is one of his that I have never seen. I wanted to see it a long time. Really wanted to see it. Saw it. Wanted to see it enough that I just, I bought the Arrow Blu-ray going, I know I'm going to watch this sometime. And that is 1975's Deep Red. Let me ask you something. Did you move anything or change something around or take anything away from here? Maybe that painting was made to disappear because it represented something important. Something so important you don't even realize it. Somebody in the house is absolutely trying to kill me, you know? goddamn mark on buying this one yeah what? holy shit i have not seen this i the, have seen this a couple times the rotten tomatoes is 96 critic whoa, 86 whoa, audience whoa. Wow. it made three thousand seven hundred nine billion lira <laughs> <laughs> oh my second. god i was on such a roller coaster there you said thousand three thousand seven hundred nine billion. billion that's how it was written in the in the post thing i thought that's weird. Wow. Which translates to about $629,000. Oh, that's better than I thought you were going to say, because I thought this was coming out to $629. <laughs> yeah, Lyra's not worth much at all. Anyway, so Dario Gento, as you might know, he's made 29 films, directed 29 films. Dracula 3D amongst them, unfortunately. Mm. But, uh, yeah, and the grand theme of picking up some of his worst films, I'll say Dracula 3 but you probably know him. If you know Dario at all, you probably know Suspiria. Yes. Um, which is easily his most popular film. Um, he's also the writer on this and wrote a lot of his films. Um, along with uh, Bernardo Zapponi. Something like that. And uh, stars of this one, David Hemmings, who is also in Blow Up, Gladiator, Barbarella. Tons and tons of films. Uh, Daria Nicolodi, who's in damn near every Argento film and a lot of other work. Uh, Gabriel Lavia, who's in Beyond the Door and a huge, apparently a huge theater star, in, like uh, quote unquote legitimate theater in Italy. The basic storyline is there's a, a jazz pianist who's and a wisecracking kind of journalist are pulled into a web of mystery as the jazz pianist has witnessed a brutal murder of a psychic. It's a giallo. <laughs> yes. It was, um, interestingly, it was, he'd kind of gotten away from doing giallos and kind of was getting a little bit of heat that maybe he just can't do a giallo anymore. So he said, fuck you. I'm going to do another one. <laughs> and he made what many people consider one of the best giallos, period, 
and it is good. Fantastic music. Do you need to explain uh, to the listeners what a giallo is? Giallo is, uh, I believe it's yellow in Italian, and it was a series of films largely in the 70s, some in the early 60s, some into the 80s, that were incredibly violent and uh, style over substance murder mysteries. Um, and uh, Fred Tony here, he could probably go on for another 15 minutes right. describing exactly <laughs> what they are. They often featured a black gloved killer with a knife, which is a little yeah, strange. That's, but... that's always kind of hit me weird that mm-hmm. that was like the trope of these yep. films was the black gloves was I don't like, know. Important. Italy is so fashion oriented. I can kind of yeah. see that. Like the, <laughs> the beautiful leather black. I mean, I... I don't know. That's a good it. reasoning. That's a fair reasoning. I like that. The music is uh, the first film done by Goblin. Oh. Eh. I freaking love the soundtrack so much. So I had it for years and listened to it a lot. And it starts playing. Oh, fuck. I know this soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, boy, it is phenomenal. I forgot. They took over for somebody who'd written some of the stuff. That's where there's some weird like guitar-based things that are a little off for them, but that's actually the previous composer who they decided wasn't doing what they wanted. Mm. And Argento heard these guys and said, you're pretty good. The guys in Jalo were like 20, 21 years old. He said, I want you to work on my film. And I'm like, okay. Because <laughs> mm. Argento was well-established at this point. Seventh or eighth movie, I think. Uh, the film is gorgeous. Uh, if you've ever seen a Dario film, Okay, let's see. If you've ever seen a 70s or 80s Dario film, they are flat-out lush. And this is up there with Suspiria and Opera as one of his most beautiful films. It is just amazing. They do this wonderful cut early on where they're in this lush red performance hall. And it hard cuts to this dirty white restroom. You're like, is this the same building? Because it looks decrepit and bad but here's where you see the killer for the first time well you see the killer's black gloves you don't see the killer of course Mm. a lot of giallo is first person killer and in a kind of creepy bit dario is usually the guy holding the knives and wearing the black gloves in his movies oh (laughs) i spent a lot nerving (laughs) Um, he was kind of well known for at least at the time for hating actors really oh. didn't like to work with actors, which kind of explains why there's a lot of mediocre performances in Dario films. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, but he does this amazing series of shots, and this goes through the whole movie where it's kind of showing what the killer probably is thinking. And it's these incredibly tight, like opening credits, seven tight shots of these weird objects on a black uh, velvet or black felt. And it just kind of travels around there with a moving camera. Interestingly enough, the first black glove killing is with a, it's not a knife, it's a meat cleaver. So you're like, oh, he's going to be doing something a little different here. And he does. That continues through there. And in order to give it a sort of surreal feeling, the area he meets, I forgot the name of it, but it's a very famous area in Italians with two giant facing statues. And in that is the bar from your favorite painting. Mine? Yeah. Yeah. That your favorite painting, oh, you always the, post thing? Oh, but, okay, yeah. Uh, Nighthawks. Yeah, and it's it's called something different, the Blue Iguana, I think, or something. And it's 
right there in the corner it's and you so see the bartender weird. and there's people sitting on it's like oh wow. God, shit right. i i must uh, i watched this on on uh, on blu-ray on my computer and i think i screenshotted like five or six shots going this looks so good and that was one of them i forgot to bring that i was going to show you that um and another another moment of true argento-esque is the first woman killed has her head shoved through glass which happens uh, in Suspiria quite vividly in it. Now, the part of what makes Argento so good at what he does is his ability to move camera. Film starts with a, I forgot the exact stain, but it, then it moves into this theater where the psychic is speaking, and the camera just moves down the aisle through all the red, and you see the people sitting in the audience, and it moves through that, and it zooms up. To, it's just a gorgeous shot. It's like, and of course, when the murder happens, the jazz guy has seen it and runs up to res- try to rescue her, and she dies. But the cop shows up and seems to be a complete moron. So, jazz man must investigate himself. <laughs> so, let's be clear: this plotting is not always Argento's strong suit. <laughs> he is fully style over substance in his best movies. He is absolutely style over substance. So he starts to look into it, and um, boy, we've got some. Now, there are two massive different cuts on this. The original cut is about 216 minutes, I think, which or two hours and 16 minutes, which is the one I watched. And there was a U.S. cut release that's 40 minutes shorter. Whoa. And one of the things, it slices. Sorry about that. <laughs> one of the things it cuts, <laughs> so it cuts out of the scene is... There's all these conversations of kind of a battle of the sexes conversations. Yeah. The jazz guy is a fucking pig. And like, uh, the, the reporter has some comment about women can be as strong as guys. And he's like, let's arm wrestle. Oh, yeah, I remember <laughs> this scene. So they have a big arm wrestling thing. And <laughs> she beats him and he gets all, well, you, you raised your elbow. And all this stuff. I was like, wow, dude, you just, just move on. <laughs> um, <laughs> But what is kind of fun is she drives, she has to drive him around. He has no car and her passenger seat is broken. So he sits like a foot and a half lower than her. And as the movie goes on, he bitches him. How can you never get this fixed, man? I'm always sitting down in this freaking hole. It's just, um, and there's a, one of his best friends is one of the musicians. He plays uh, piano at the bar. He's also gay, which is uh occasionally done in Argento films. His films would be considered, I think, in some ways for the 70s, fairly forward thinking, because the fact he's gay is not a storyline. He's just gay. Yeah. And he shows up at the jazz musician, who's also a little homophobic, shows up at the where the guy's supposed to be, and the person who opens the door looks like a guy in drag, but it, apparently the, it's actually a woman playing the role <laughs> with the mustache. Wait a second. <laughs> Female, female impersonator. It's a female it's playing a, female. a male playing a female. Yeah, it's a female, female impersonator. There you go. Uh, and of course, the guy's getting drunk on the good old classic J and B booze that you yeah, see why, in all the yellows. Why is that a trope? I don't understand that one either. You have no idea. Okay, <laughs> but it is. It absolutely is. It doesn't show up as much in this as it does in most because it's just sort of sitting on the sidebar where the guy's drinking. There's a lot of great moments with the killer watching from various places, and you never know who it is, of course. Um, 
And when they stalk and kill, there's this creepy freaking lullaby. And I'm like, oh, what kid would listen to that and think, oh, I'm comforted as a child. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but he figures out what the song is. So that's sort of supposed to be the way he's going to find out what's going on. That And those unique, that shot I was describing earlier with the objects comes up again and looks really cool. Again, another really cool looking thing. One thing he does in this film that is really unsettling is a lot of his movies are disturbingly violent. But what, what he did in this film that he didn't do in a lot of the other ones is it sets up where uh, it's still all black gloves, but it's definitely not all knives. But it's all, almost all pains we can identify with. Like he kills one lady by filling, filling a bath full of scalding water and scalding her while drowning so you can feel, oh. I know what scalded water feels like. That's got to hurt. And there's another scene with, you know, you guys with eyes, I'm that way with teeth. Mm. And there's a scene where he's killing this guy and he jams his mouth into a part of a fireplace. And then he falls down and his teeth Ugh. hit the, hit the oh, coffee yeah. table and I just like, oh my God. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oddly surrealist moments too, where the killer for some reason um, sends in this strange doll after this guy, which is like more like a giant mechanical tin machine and riding a little basketball or a little bicycle <laughs> riding up to the guy. The guy's like, oh, what is this? And the killer comes in and knocks his teeth around. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then we go back to the guy being really sexist again. There's a couple of these scenes but, uh, where this one, because he lost in the fight, his, his new thing is now that guys are better at thinking in a certain way and figuring stuff out while of course she's figuring shit out and he's not figuring <laughs> anything out. <laughs> Very strange, disturbing scene of what looks like a real dog fight. Uh, like a couple of dogs in the street fighting. And it's, it's very brief though, but it's like, yeah, that's unnerving too. Um, I did like that. The lady that was drowned in the tub when the guy, she wrote something in steam when the guy goes to investigate it. The tape is on the ground, <laughs> outlying her body with the finger pointing up to her. I love it. <laughs> and so he finds out about this house where the killer lived or something. Honestly, the storyline's a little secondary. I'm not entirely certain what the house the, is. It, yeah, I remember the clues making no sense. He mm -hmm. figured out that house because of a plant. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, yeah just like with a nursery rhyme. It's like, how... How on with this vaguest fucking clue you somehow managed to find he, an address? He kept going to uh, people with uh, professional gardens like nurseries and saying, "Do you know this plant?" The guy's like, "Oh no, this plant can't grow here, so we don't have it." And eventually, find a guy. Go, oh yeah, I remember planting that. Lost a fortune because they all died and everybody was upset. And I don't plant it anymore. Just <laughs> like, oh, that's the house I want. <laughs> okay. And then in that scene is this little Italian girl who's a freak. And uh, the guy, mm -hmm. <laughs> see, as her dad just smacks her across the face and went, Jesus, what was that for? And it pans down to this lizard writhing on the ground with a giant hairpin stuck through his head. Oh. <laughs> yeah. He slaps, Why, don't stop doing that. Smack. <laughs> it's like, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of okay with it. I was actually, smacked. <laughs> totally. I felt the same way in that moment. And also, I think that 
I don't know. I felt like that was a real actual thing I was looking at. It's hard. Just Italians, there's a few Italian films that I know were very abusive to animals. Yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised I like if it, it was real. real. Obviously, it wasn't CGI. No. <laughs> something. Uh, the, the house is an amazing mansion. And Argento knew it was an amazing mansion. So there is, God, it must be a four or five minute scene of the guy just walking around the mansion. <laughs> Looks great. It is cool shots, but I'm kind of like, it's going anywhere. <laughs> so he finds something on the wall. Oh, this one part that bugged me about this when he's looking around, the problem was the music remained very repetitive. So it kind of almost felt like he was walking around longer than he probably was. Yeah. And this was one of those pieces that I think was done by the previous guy that maybe Goblin messed with a little bit. Because it's just, because Gar- Goblin's repetitive, just like Carpenter is, but their shit works, even in a repetitive nature. And this didn't quite work. <laughs> the house gets set on fire. And I'm pretty sure it's about six or seven lighters <laughs> just being... Uh, rotoscoped or something on top of the house. Oh, no. <laughs> Bernie's like, oh, well, that's not so good. And then you think the killer gets destroyed. And you realize, oh, shit, there's 20 minutes left in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and so that leads to the real killer, which I'll leave off because, you know what? If you're going to watch this movie, don't watch it for the story. Watch it for the way it looks because it is I had a hard gorgeous. time following any of this if I'm being honest <laughs> that's totally fair okay. yeah I, I've, I've seen it as I was saying I've seen it a few times and I really every time I'm like I don't know why we are where, why is this guy even doing this at all yeah. there's a very it doesn't matter to mm-hmm. a certain extent because it's the feeling and the look and the like weirdness and yep. the freakiness of the objects that are really pulling you through yeah So I then proceeded to watch like a a lot of the extras that are on there. And one of the main ones was a new documentary by uh, Michael McKenzie. And his take was basically the story simple. It's a basic whodunit and the deaths are elaborate and stylized almost to the point of distraction. But that's the point. And that, that relatableness was planned. Argento knew what he was doing. He purposely picked the small violence that can disturb us yeah. to pull us into that uncomfortableness of the scene. And it works. And part of his dislike of actors is why he is so elaborate with camera. The, there's this amazing shot, which shouldn't be amazing. It's the reporter and the jazz singer have found, or jazz poser have found a school that has records that go back that relate to some art they found in the house. So they're walking down the hall going there and it's just a walking down the hall with the camera following them. But the way he moved the camera down and the way he composed the two of them walking in the frame, it just looks incredible. Mm. Like this scene has no right to be this interesting <laughs> looking because it's just, and it, it doesn't tell you any story. It's just, this looks cool. Oh, they're passing by the principal's office. <laughs> it's like, all right, but it looks cool. <laughs> so you can keep doing it. He is well known, apparently, at the time in Italy for doing these, looking at masculinity in films because, well, you know, Italy is nothing if not supremely (laughs) known for its sexism. Mm -hmm. That's why he made the guy such an extreme, almost joke, because Argento was like, I don't think you're on the right path there, guys. (laughs) 
a lot of his films, and this is another one that deals in that, is the idea that family is the root of most of our lives' problems. And the killer is involved with family, and it all relates back to family. And the way he figures out who the killer is, is also incredibly stylistic. And involves mirrors and art and things like that. That It's just like everything he does in this film to serve the story is done in an incredibly artistic manner. Very little of the story is progressed by the actors. <laughs> it's progressed by the camera and what he shoots. They also had an interview with Claudia Samoti, I think that's how you say his name, who's uh, one of the original members of Goblin. It's interesting. They didn't record the music like a standard soundtrack. They recorded the music before the movie was done, and they just used the music however mm. Argento felt it should be used. Wow. Which is why probably some of the scenes, the music is disconnected. I think with Goblin, I think that still works. Like the opening scene in Suspiria, that music, although it works perfectly in the scene, doesn't actually work with what's going on at all. Right. <laughs> as far as like beats and stuff, but the way it works, the way everything comes together, it's amazing. And this film has a lot of that too. Uh, the The film was hugely successful in Italy and got a giant hit album for Goblin. It was number one in the charts for Italy for 15 weeks and spent oh. one year in the top 10. Oh my God. And has f- sold over 4 million albums. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, John Carpenter specifically references Deep Red as Halloween's influence. It sounds so much like it, even just mm-hmm. playing in my head. I, man, Goblin, if you like John Carpenter's music, you will love Goblin. Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially his early work. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a musical produced on Deep Red, which only had like a week of performances or something oh in Italy. Oh, my God. This, just a few years ago. That would be interesting to see. Yeah. The Some of the information I've provided you also was provided by the book uh, Broken Mirrors, Broken Minds by Madeline McDonough. A couple little tiny facts left over. They screened the film a few years ago uh, with what Goblin is called now is uh, Dominia, or at the time when they played it, for 10,000 people in wow. Italy, in an outdoor screening in Italy. <laughs> it's like, hang out, man. There's a rumor out there that uh, George Romero wanted to do a remake in 3D. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say that. That would have been weird. <laughs> the one thing it doesn't have a lot of, which most Giallo films do, but most Argento films do not, is a lot of sex and nudity. Hmm. It doesn't do very much of that, especially compared to some of the other, like the Giallo, uh, Tony had me what strip nude for your killer. <laughs> yeah, that's... That one's right in the title. <laughs> but it did, it, uh, most of his films don't. That's part of his style. It just doesn't. And uh, yeah, I got to tell you, man, I love this film. This probably sits there with Suspiria as one of my top Argento films. Wow. Because I watch, I watch him for style. <laughs> the Argento film for the story, necessarily. I think that's part of the problem that his later movies suffer from, is he wasn't pushing the style I mean, he pushed the style as far as it could go without getting ridiculous in this film and in Suspiria and in uh, Tenebrae. 
Yeah. Uh, I was thinking of Tenebre because like Tenet, mm-hmm. that also makes no sense to me. Oh no. But, but there's that shot of the building. And yeah. Oh, and like that, that's the one where she has to like go underwater, right? And swim into like the, the I don't bottom remember. of the building. I haven't seen it in a long time. I just remember yeah. the guy getting trapped in the all glass. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that's glass right. room. And then the camera traveling up and seeing what's going on in the rooms as it goes up to the, it's final. It's like, what a cool shot. So good. So if you if you're interested in camera movement and color, um, that's one thing I love about '70s films too. I've watched a lot more of those in the last few years. The colors are so incredible. Yeah. And uh, Argento's the remaster that Arrow did for this is phenomenal, mm. and it just looks gorgeous. So that is my art tour. Well, cool. Well, uh, with all of that said, then, Eric, I believe the uh, the next oh, yes. pick is yours. Yes, it is. So we're going to go probably less arturistic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> in the, I think it'd be fun to do something a little different in secret societies in films. Ooh. Oh. All right. Okay. I can't really think of anything that I'd say is off limits because nothing springs to mind as far as uh I, the only thing I can think of is maybe eyes wide shut, but could be. But I, yeah, that's fine to talk about if you want to. I don't, okay, okay. With that. I like that. Cool. Well, okay. As usual, big thanks to everybody who's out there liking and sharing and yeah. spreading the word. We really, really appreciate that. Um, of course, big thanks to the two of you for coming all the way up here. I really appreciate that, so that I don't have to drive. <laughs> <laughs> and, Always a pleasure. Oh well, good. And uh, and as you saw uh, today, I've got I've commissioned an artist to paint a mural <laughs> along the building. Well done, well so. good choice. Looks good, very three, bright. Three artists, I believe you said. Yeah, that's right. So um, okay, that means that we will be back in one week, and we're talking secret societies. Cool. All right. cool. See ya. Our show is recorded somewhere high above Naval Station Everett at the nexus of all realities and is engineered and produced by Eric Margaret. Our theme music is Strange Eons Part 1 by the band Nightshade and is used with permission. Find Strange Eons Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, wherever fine podcasts are found. This week at Macy's, get an extra 25% off the season's latest styles with your coupon or Macy's card. That's on top of already great savings, like 20 to 50% off Ink, DKNY, Clubroom, and more of your favorite designers for him and her. Get 30% off one pair, 40% off two pairs of boots, shoes, and booties. And prep your kitchen with 20 to 50% off roasting pans, cookware, and more. Plus, Star Rewards members earn rewards faster during Star Money bonus days, now at Macy's. Savings off regular sale and clearance prices. Exclusions apply.